Welcome. You are listening to the Radical Reverend Show here on CIUT 89.5 FM or on SoundCloud, iTunes, wherever you get your podcast. Uh, first to CIUT, just want to thank everybody. Last week was our fundraising show. Thank you for your generosity. Keep it coming. Uh, certainly the station still needs it. It's still the only alternative radio station in the GTA. Uh, and, and actually goes farther than that. It goes from Buffalo to Barrie and Kitchener to Coburg. So uh, if you're listening to the radio, be thankful, send them some cash. Um, and uh, of course, if you're listening on podcasts, we were delighted to have you there too. Today uh, is our Law and Disorder panel. We haven't had one for a while, and this is going to be exciting. Regular contributor, David Slavic, uh, who's been on the show many times, and you all know that he was a strategist in Washington, D.C., um, also a law professor, and is now up here running his own podcast, which is called The Popular Podcast, and even gets shout-outs in British mainstream press. So there you yes, go. Absolutely. Listen into that. <laughs> and um, and today, to help us talk about the, the current and most pressing issue, the Middle East, um, we have Professor Emilio Dabed, uh, also a lawyer um, up at Osgood right now, but has really uh, been around the world, um, Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Palestine, um, and also taught at Columbia. Um, so, uh, Emilio, it's delightful to have you on the show. We're honored. Thank you for, for getting here. Thank you for having me, Sean. So let's jump right in. Uh, I mean, if you were to just follow uh, CTV, CBC, mainstream media, CBC is getting a little bit better these days, shout out. <laughs> but still, um, if you were just to follow mainstream media, both north and south of the border, um, you would you would hear this basically and and you know you can jump in and correct me if i'm wrong but basically there's a war going yes it is almost a war going on uh, in the middle east between israel and hamas and um and you know uh, this started because hamas fired rockets into israel and israel retaliated and oh isn't this too bad and uh don't we all pray for a two-state solution and peace in the Middle East? And basically something along those lines. Um, so I'm going to throw this to you, Amelia, and I want you to tell us what is actually going on. Mm. Yeah, effectively, this is a, the, the narrative that we, we find in most Western countries, and it's really frustrating and terrifying at the same time, because basically these propaganda, I would say, is covering up horrible crimes, horrible crimes, uh, the most egregious uh, crimes in, under international law. And so it's, a, it's an important topic, I think. Uh, uh, well, regarding the covering in Canada, I would say, look, uh, uh, when I was in New York uh, and then I was coming back to Palestine, I thought, well, uh, I think things cannot get worse than that in terms of covering the Middle East. Uh, I was I was thinking about the U.S. news until I came to Canada, actually, and uh, and and I realized that uh, despite the image that we have of Canada outside as a, as a country committed and involved and supportive of diplomatic channels and etc. Uh, Canada remains particularly in the issue, not only, but particularly in the issue of uh, Palestine, 
um, uh, remains within a very problematic, um, uh, a very pro problematic position. But but this is not a problem only only in Canada. I mean, this is a, a longer, older history of uh, the denial of Palestinian existence on the on the earth. I would say right that that started very early on uh, with the Zionist movement and slogans that were repeated. Um, since since then, such as uh, a, a land without a people for a people without a land, uh, that was first officially somehow articulated in the Balfour Declaration. I don't know if you remember the the text of the Balfour Declaration, but the Balfour Declaration basically um, made explicit the support of the British government to create a national home for Jewish people in Palestine, and then it says almost literally without prejudice of the non-Jewish communities living in the place. So the majority of the population, uh, almost 80% of the population at the time, which was Palestinian population, was only referred in, in the Balfour Declaration as the non-Jewish communities living on the land. But the, this trend repeated again, I'm, I'm so sorry, um, I have a, I have uh, something going on, uh, uh, and this uh, and this formula repeated again later uh, in the Oslo negotiations. First, in the Madrid negotiations, I don't know if you remember, but Palestinians were denied uh, representation in the in the Madrid negotiations, and they only could participate in these negotiations under a Jordanian delegation. Uh, so, so. Uh, this denial also uh, uh, extend to other areas. Uh, for example, the denial to Palestinians of being capable of producing a, a reliable historiography. So Palestinians have been saying what Human Rights Watch and other NGOs and human rights institutions are saying today. Palestinians were saying it decades ago and nobody listened to them until uh, the new Israeli historians, for example, brave people, brave academics, Ilan Pape and others, started, started making a, a revision of the Israeli state historical narrative and they appropriated somehow, they revealed, right? The same things that Palestinians were saying for decades, only then this narrative was taken seriously and was made part somehow of the debate on, on Palestine today. So. You see uh, the, the, the blackout on, on Palestine uh, that you see in Canada, in the US, in Europe today is nothing but a, the reflection of a long, older history of denial of Palestinian existence, denial of Palestinian identity, denial of Palestinian historiography, etc. Yeah, I'm going to let David uh, jump in here for a minute. Um, one of the common refrains uh, that you hear in in well, you don't actually hear it often, but when when some objection to Israeli militarism is raised or the occupation or the wall is that Israel has a right to defend itself. Israel has a right to defend itself. Um, uh, and maybe you can just, yeah, jump in. Yeah, I, and I think I, I would love for Emilio to talk a little bit more about this, but the, but the, the right to defend is, um, 
is very complicated in international law. And I think that uh, it's it's pretty problematic in, in the instance where you have essentially a permanent occupying force, uh, you know, uh, dealing with a, a subject population that is, uh, is separated from each other, you know, from their own people within an organ, you know, within a place. Um, I think you're, you're seeing sort of the opinions change about how that works and what that looks like. Um, I would say five to 10 years ago, even saying that you were pro-Palestinian was was considered almost terroristic in in the United in the U.S. and 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 elsewhere in the West, where you know it was uh, you know associated with radicalism. Now it's a at least amongst people left of center is is, is generally an accepted idea that the Palestinian people are, are getting a raw deal, and and at at worst is is definitely moving towards something like a what some people would call a genocide. Um, not in the in the the sense that I think people think in a generic way, but like in a, in a more modern understanding of that term. Um, the interesting thing that I'm seeing um, about that is that in this instance, the uh, Israeli um, PR machine has worked in ways that it hasn't in the past. It's it's moved into a, a sort of a pinkwashing uh, where they're using, you know, the support for uh, for LGBTQ uh, 2S uh uh, rights in Israel and, and 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 comparing those to elsewhere in the sort of the region, and and, and that's why you know you, you have to j excuse what happens in Israel, what Israel does, um, but you know that that ignores you know the the sort of movements, the Palestinian gay movements, um, you know organizations like Aswa, Al Quas, uh, Palestinian Queers for Boycott, Divestment, and, and Sanctions. And, you know, there's all these sort of organizations and, and cultural things that are happening within. Uh, the Palestinian people that are ignored because of this sort of a very aggressive uh, pinkwashing campaign that's going on right now. Back to you, um, Emilio. Uh, and again, if you're just tuning in, you're listening to the Radical Reverend Show. We have two uh, terrific lawyers today on law and disorder. And of course, we're speaking about um, well, uh, what's legal is another question, but um, what's going on in the Middle East uh, with Emilio David and uh, with David Slavic. Emilio, um, so so that uh, that statement, uh, Israel has a right to defend herself, um, uh, you know, um, and, and you hear this in mainstream peace. Well, you, you hear this from Israeli press too, not all of it, um, but some of it um, that says, well, you know, they're firing rockets at us. We have a right to fire back. What do you say to that? Well, there are, there are two ways of framing this or understanding or responding to this. Uh, from a, a strictly legal point of view, the very idea of framing this crisis and every single crisis, I heard that in 2014, I, I heard that in 2009, um, as the right of Israel to defend itself. Well, from an a international law point of view, this uh, argument, I am sorry to say, is preposterous. Uh, what, uh, what Israel has under international law is an obligation to protect civilian population and the occupied population in general. It's not a right, it's an obligation of protection. And, um, and so from, from this point of view, um, uh, the, 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 the argument seems to me preposterous. Um, now, there is another way of looking at it from a, a purely human point of view and uh, uh, from, from our own ideas and aspirations of justice. Uh, 
so let me frame it this way, uh, quoting uh, Noam Chomsky, who really put it so simply, but so eloquently. He said some time ago, you take my land, you take my water, you take my job, you demolish my house, you kill my father, you kill my sister. And then because I tried to respond to this, you, you, I, I, I am the one to blame because I, I reacted to that. Um, people are seeing, are watching it. This is not like in 1948, where the, the ethnic cleansing of Palestine could take place without people even having an idea of what was really going on today. Today we can watch it and we are doing it. Uh, Israel is not defending itself. Israel is defending uh, a supremacist regime that is colonizing Palestinian lands. Um, and, uh, and I call people to, 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 to believe their eyes. Uh, what, what we are watching is the onslaught of two million people in Gaza who have been under siege for more than 15 years, officially for 15 years. I would say that that started long before. Um, they don't have any way or anywhere to run. They don't have the military power to confront Israel. So, so my question is, my question is, against what is Israel defending itself exactly? Uh, what, what, what we are watching on, on videos in social media is how violence in Israeli society is completely unleashed. Not only the violence of the government that we were used to, but the horrific scenes in, 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 in cities in, 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 in Israel today, Palestinian cities in Israel, or Palestinian populated cities of Haifa, Jaffa, and uh, the Triangle, uh, where people are terrorized by the Israeli police, precisely the, we are talking about Palestinian citizens of Israel. They have a legitimate expectation to be protected by this police. And this is a police that when you call them, and, and, and I was there when this happens, I, I had friends going through this thing. When you call the police because a mob is attacking your house, this police asks you first if you are Jewish or, or, or Arab. And depending on your response, you will get assistance or not. So they are left, completely left to their fate uh, in a, within a nation, within a nation where hatred is rampant, is, is horrific. Um, so yes, this is what I, I, I would say regarding this. So Emilia, I'm gonna keep with you because you're you're the man on this for sure. Um, so, you know, this seems so intractable to someone from the outside looking in. It seems like this, as you say, has gone on for more than a half a century now, you know, um, and doesn't seem to end. I mean, the, the only possible ending, uh, and David alluded to this, you know, that seems, conceivable and, and you know nobody's saying well you said the word genocide but is 
Palestinians all leave or they're all dead or something. So what is, what hasn't worked, I suppose, like things have been tried, you know, what hasn't worked and what, what can work? What's, what's the way forward here? Well, I, I think I, I may, I may seem to you, uh, I, I may sound to you simplifying, but I, I really think that uh, the solution is a relatively uh, 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 simple solution, actually. Uh, we hear all the time that this conflict, which is not really a conflict, but let's call it conflict uh, uh, for lack of another uh, word, uh, I would say this colonization process rather than conflict, um, um, we hear very often that this is, these people have been fighting for centuries. Uh, there is religion inside this, this uh, conflict and therefore it's intractable. There is no way, there is nothing to do. Uh, this is not true. The, 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 the conflict is not a religious conflict. It's not a conflict against Jewish people is the conflict of a colonized people against colonization and a supremacist ideology that is driving this process of colonization. And therefore, and therefore the solution is relatively simple as Edward Said, uh, the Palestinian intellectual once said, this is not about denying the right of Jewish people to live in Palestine. Uh, Edward Said thought, and I think that Jewish people actually have a right to live in Palestine. So they, they to, to solve this, this problem, they don't have to renounce to their lives in Palestine. What they need to renounce is the shape, the ideological shape that their national nationalism took at one moment, I, I mean Zionism, as a colonial enterprise, as an enterprise of domination and supremacy of one uh, religious or ethnic group uh, over another. This is what we need to renounce. Well, the, the same thing that we have, we have, we had to renounce uh, in after every every totalitarian or genocidal ideology has appeared. Uh, we need to renounce this ideology and to accept the idea, which is mat materially and uh, uh, practicable uh, and possible of living together in one state where you have one vote for one person and we dismantle the, the system, the legal, the Israeli legal system of segregation and domination of Jewish uh, people over Palestinians. Uh, 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 some, some people tell me, yes, but this is not easy or this is not practicable because these people don't want to live together. Well, well uh, 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 I'm not sure that they don't want to live together. I, I'm not sure that Palestinians, actually what we see in Palestine today and around the world in the Palestinian diaspora is, is an increasing uh, endorsement of a one-state solution. Uh, maybe this is not practical, but I, I, I ask the audience, are we looking for a practical solution or for a just solution? 
And I think if what, what, we, what we want is a second, if what we want is a just solution, well, the one state solution is the closest alternative that we have actually. One of the other, um, one of the other uh, certainly uh, viewpoints that has been put forward um, about the situation in Israel-Palestine has been that, you know, even though, as you say, Emilio, this is not primarily a religious issue, it's an issue of colonization. Um, right now, you have uh, within both these communities, um, some pretty, uh, and you, you know, here you, you're on the Radical Reverend show speaking to clergy here, you have some pretty right-wing expressions of, of religions there that seem to fuel the animosity and and again in mainstream media you'll hear that this is on both sides you know that but you have you know you have muslims that you know do want to you know you have elements of a mass that want to drive the jews into the sea you have certainly huge areas of israel that are fundamentalist um jewish communities that want the same you know that they want all the land and there shouldn't be a palestinian left period so the one state solution what do you do with that is there any truth to it and what do you do if there is well um again i don't think uh, i don't think that the conflict is in any way a religious conflict i think uh, i think uh, effectively the the crisis and the tensions have uh religious signs but uh, but but or religious expressions, but but the the the, the conflict is not about uh, well at least from the point of view of Palestinians. I don't think the problem is Muslims hating Jewish people. Uh, I, I mean, uh, you can refer to to uh, to uh, opinion polls in Palestine. I have my lived experience there with my students in Palestine. And I can testify on the fact that they are so sensitive to the difference between, between Zionism and Jewishness. And they constantly declare that their problem is not with Jewishness, who is a, which is a community that has been present in Palestine forever, forever. Palestinians, Arabs, and Jewish live together in Palestine in relative calm, for, for centuries. So, uh, of course, the, the conflict sometimes takes religious expressions, but not because I, I Muslim, hate you as a Jewish people. No, I, 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 as a Palestinian, I am against you trying to expropriate my land, expropriating my water, humiliating me on daily basis, and that includes your attacks on Al-Aqsa Mosque, which happens to be the most or one of the most sacred places for Islam. But again, this is just a, a coincidence between religious symbols and a conflict that is actually a political conflict. Uh, David, I want to allow you some room here too, a little yeah. bit to get in. A current leadership, um, of course, in Israel with Netanyahu has its problems. Uh, I think you want to jump in and say here. Yeah, I, I think that that's that's really interesting, and I, I think that you know, 
one thing that you've noticed and is that whatever Netanyahu is in trouble politically, uh, he, you know, in order to form a government or he, he needs the, you know, the, the, the block that's uh, opposing him, it needs uh, a unity between Arabs and, and Israelis, uh, citizens of, of, of uh, Israel. And it, you, you can't help but see that the tail wagging the dog, but, but this time it's gone a little too far. And I, I think one of the things that we didn't address yet was, um, I, and uh, Amelia, you can correct me if my my pronunciation is is incorrect, but the Sheikh Jarrah situation, Sheikh, uh, Sheikh Jarrah, yes. So if you, could you explain a little bit more about that? Because I think that that is one of the things that people um, have seen recently. They've seen these videos of of people going into other people's houses, uh, Israelis going into to Palestinians' houses, sort of taking them. Um, it's a really complicated situation, but I think that uh, giving people a little bit of background on that will, will sort of illustrate that it's not all bombs and and bricks that that it, that are you know preventing people from enjoying their lives and, and Palestinians from enjoying their lives. It's all it's also the law, and it's also uh, a more sort of genteel type of uh, oppression. Yeah, and Emilio too, you had mentioned uh, before the show um, leadership. Uh, let, let's talk about the leadership. In the, mm -hmm. in the Middle East too, and and what needs to happen to bring about uh, the one-state solution? One, uh, can I, uh, Sherry, can I just finish somehow contextualizing or responding to your previous question about what is the solution and mm -hmm. and, and how uh, how feasible it is, which is an important point. I so. What needs to be done, you were telling me, to bring about some kind of solution? Well, uh, um, Israel came to existence uh, thanks to international support. And I don't think it, it is possible today to bring Israel to comply with international law without the support of the international community. And, and in here, I, 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 I want, of course, to highlight the importance of it. And at the same time, um, and at the same time insist on, 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 a, on, a, on, on certain points that are paradoxical because Palestinians have been told for centuries that what, sorry, for decennies that what they need is to renounce to violence, which actually was the enactment of a right that peoples have under international law, which is the right to resist uh, foreign oppression or domination. But they were, they were told to renounce to these rights, somehow suggesting that the international law alternative, the interna internationalization of the conflict was the, the path, the way to reach an agreement. And, <clears throat> and we have been doing that since the beginning of 1990s. And the only thing that we have seen is um, settlements and land appropriation by Israel increase uh, the number of settlers in the West Bank went from 200,000 to 600,000 today and counting and uh, and the international international law and international 
uh, uh, institutions have shown themselves incapable of bringing uh, these to a, a, a just solution. Nevertheless, even today, even the attempt by Palestinians to resort to international law is being criminalized. And I'm asking you, well, what is the alternative left to Palestinians? If they, if they needed to renounce to violence, and they did for most of them, most, most of, the, of the, the Palestinian groups did, and engage in the negotiations, and now you are telling them that, that they resort to international law and international institutions is another form of the legitimation of Israel. And, and some people have even dared to say that it was another way of terrorism, legal terrorism. And, and, and so we have seen the US in the last decades using the veto power in the, in the, in, in the uh, security, uh, UN Security Council, supporting Israel. And today, look at the reaction of the international community with uh, the, the initiative, the Palestinian initiative to bring this to the International Criminal Court, uh, which has basically uh, produced a backlash in Europe and the US. Uh, you are aware of this, Trump, the, the former Trump administration, threatening the court, threatening an international court with sanctions and actually materializing these sanctions. So, so, uh, uh, Sherry, uh, the, 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 what is needed is a coherent position from the international uh, community in terms of bringing Israel or forcing Israel, if that is necessary, to comply with international law. If you do so, the conflict could perfectly be solved. I'm not saying that without tensions but we would be closer to a, to a just solution. I don't know if you want to, to reformulate anything or I can go with the rest of the questions that you were asking. Yeah, well, let, I'm just going to ask uh, David, maybe jump in here, um, in terms of the international response. Um, um, yes, I mean, you've just heard Emilio, it's not been great so far. Yeah. I, I think it's been very interesting to see that um, I, I actually think that this had this happened under Trump, you would have seen a more uh, unified uh, uh, support of the Palestinian people because it would have been, you know, this they there's something about the way that that uh, the power works with with Israel and and the Democrats differently than it works with Israel and, and the Republicans. And you'll see the Democrats become a little more hardline on against the Palestinians when they're in power. And I think that's just the nature of, of sort of American politics. But the Let's interesting- Say more about that because that's yeah, kind of, that, yeah. that runs counter, that's sort of counterintuitive to the way most yeah. people would see it. Yeah, so I think I think one of the things that that you'll see is that that ultimately the U.S. has, has a strong, strongly supports Israel and that, that in, in, in many ways, uh, is more vested in their national interest than our own in, in some in some instances because oftentimes supporting Israel is, is is detrimental to our own national interest and in ways that that are surprising and that you know there's historical reasons for that there's political reasons for that there's there's money monetary reasons for that um, but the the interesting thing to see is that um, people who would have absolutely been more supportive of the Palestinian people under Trump would have said, hey, why isn't our president doing something to stop this, are, are, are really being mute 
and under Joe Biden because they're like, this is our guy. We got, you know, we got to support him. And I think after in the sort of post-Trump hangover, you see a lot of people who who have moved left or I or I say to the right side, correct side on this Palestinian issue over the last four to eight years, uh, as the sort of Overton window has changed in the politics in the U.S. on on Arab-Israeli uh, affairs. Um, you're seeing those people sort of backslide into a sort of 1990s, 2000 opinion where they're saying, you know, well, you know, let's just Let's see how it works. You know, Israel's got a sense to defend itself. I, I'm quite surprised, you know, that uh, that uh, the summer after the uprising in the U.S., that people aren't seeing this as the same kind of uprising. Um, and I think they would have had Trump had won. Now, now again, um, just to you, and I'll go back to Amelia in a minute on this. And by the way, you're listening to the Radical Reverend Show. We have uh, Law and Disorder panel um, uh, this week. We're delighted to have Emilio uh, Dabit on. Um, uh, Palestinian background, um, also taught at Columbia, now at Osgood as a professor up there. Uh, and David Slavic, uh, again, strategist from the United States originally, um, uh, his own podcast, popular podcast, and uh, lawyer and uh, prof down there. Um, Joe Biden has actually, he said some stuff, right? Yeah. Like he's, he said some stuff, yeah. um, uh, which kind of sets him apart from, from Trump, but you, you're saying that doesn't matter none. Like, yeah, I, I think it's, it's really when you, when you, I mean, I think that, that Biden often says the right things. Um, he's, they, they, they have a very polished sort of pr presentation, you know, give his, put his gaffes aside. Right. Um, you know, overall, when you look on his Twitter page, there's there's very measured sort of opinions on things, um, you know, it's particularly foreign policy, particularly, you know, with with allies. Um, I think the one thing that you're you'll see where the the sort of the rubber meets the road is where the you know, the State Department's uh, spokespersons are talking. And, um, you know, when when asked, they, you know, like, do Palestinians have the right to protect themselves? They say, you know, well, Palestinians have the right to be in safety, but that's not that's not the answer, right? That's that's not really one an answer that acknowledges sort of the what has been the the U.S. policy of working towards a two state solution, right? So if you think it, the, these people are operating as a state, right, then you have to treat them like a state, which gives them the right to defend themselves, you know. And as Amelia said, the responsibility to defend themselves, you know, as an as an organ as a as a government. Uh, so I think that you're you're seeing um, you know the the Democrats sort of slow walk here, and also that because there is um, sort of a political shift going on in the U.S. where where the the uh, Republicans have become sort of more right, and there's more sort of center right politicians, center right voters out there sort of up for grabs. The Democrats are walking a tightrope here and trying to swing sort of more um, affluent. Um, votes that may have been more supportive of Israel than in the past. So they have a younger base that is is very, very pro-Palestinian, uh, more so than any time in history. And then you have a sort of a older, more uh, entrenched base that is uh, that has a little more money to give to the to the Democrats, who is much more supportive of Israel. So I, I think they're really in a bind. Yeah. Uh, Emilio, you just heard what David said about the American response, um, and you have outlined um, pretty clearly what the international response has been um, and what pressures there. So, uh, so I, I just go back to my to, to the conversation we started. Um, you know, how are we going to get from what is happening now to, you know, a you know a just peace? Not just a peace, but a just peace, where Palestinians have a, you know one person, one vote. How do we get there? 
and what leadership is necessary to get there? It's really difficult to understand um, um, the international, I, I would say Western, fundamentally Western, European and North American position on, on, on that. Uh, I'm, here I'm repeating myself, right? but this is important, I think. Uh, uh, Palestinians are being left without an alternative. And this is never good, politically speaking. Um, uh, first, uh, Palestinians, in order to reach Oslo Agreement, were required to renounce to uh, armed resistance, and they did for the larger part of the, the political spectrum in Palestine, they did. Um, but that was not, not enough. And, uh, and their aspirations uh, to, uh, to a homeland, to a state, etc., were frustrated precisely by the institutions that were promising somehow or suggesting to them that they were a better alternative to armed struggle. And that has been, uh, that, that this is what transpires at the, at the UN, fundamentally with the, the UN Security Council and the veto power that is uh, exercised every time uh, that there is a resolution critical of Israel, with maybe one exception that we have uh, at the end of the Obama administration in 2016. But that was really um, a, a good resolution uh, for the wrong reasons, right? Obama somehow was trying to get back to Netanyahu for, for, for political personal reasons, I would say. And this is why he ordered his uh, UN ambassador to abstain uh, in this vote, which allowed the resolution to pass. But actually, the international community and uh, uh, fundamentally, particularly the US, have not shown any consistent, coherent position that somehow could make us hope for, for a solution. So what we need to reverse is that not only the compliance of Israel, uh, uh, of its obligations under international law, but calling our own governments or your governments uh, um, uh, in the West, in Europe and North America to do, to do the same. Uh, uh, not to, uh, and this is a call, don't leave, don't leave Palestinians without any alternative. Now, your question of what kind of leadership uh, is required for that brings brings us somehow also to the issue of the Palestinian leadership, and I don't know if you want to. Very much to, so. Keep going. Okay, <laughs> uh, because this is another important, a very very fundamental topic. You see, I I, I am uh, I am opposed to the idea of continuing portraying the the Palestinian situation as a fight a kind of binary situation of a fight of Palestinians against Israelis. Of course, of course, the main obstacle that Palestinians have today is Israeli colonization and, uh, and the Israeli domination. I'm not saying that Israel is not the problem. I'm saying that since Oslo, we have, we have another problem. And, and th this new problem is the, is the Palestinian leadership itself, that somehow 
Uh, and, and I think this is important because the audience doesn't always understand why uh, the Palestinian government and the Palestinian leadership actually has these awkward, perplexing uh, positions on on during this crisis. I, I'm saying, for example, I don't know if the audience follows tightly what is going on in Palestine, but Palestinians today are being repressed by the Palestinian Authority as much as they are being repressed by the Israeli army in the West Bank. And the Palestinian Authority is uh, preventing demonstrations, arresting people, many times torturing them or subjecting them to, to this kind of uh, treatment. And, and so people may ask themselves, what, 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 why is this happening? Well, this is happening precisely because Oslo was never meant to be a peace process. Uh, and, and, but the international community and Israel fundamentally never said it. But they understood it in this way. Actually, when Gisak Rabin, the, the late uh, uh, former prime minister of Israel, went to the Knesset, the Israeli parliament in, in 1994, to explain to the Knesset why he was signing Oslo, giving some kind of concessions to pal pal Palestinian aspirations, uh, his explanation was not an explanation about peace and reconciliation and living together, but rather uh, he suggested that the, the intentions of the Oslo agreements were a, a new form of administration of the same situation. He said to the Knesset, I'm signing the Oslo agreements because they, referring to Palestinians, will do our job better than us without having to uh, to respond to NGO human rights organizations or courts of any kind, they will do it in, in their own way, which was basically repressing Palestinian people. And, and this is exactly what transpired uh, later with the Palestinian Authority. Arafat, as well as much as uh, Abu Mazen, maybe the, the only difference is a difference of intensity because Arafat never had the kind of control that Abu Mazen has today regarding the, the West Bank, uh, um, only distinguished by a question of intensity, the policies of the, the Palestinian Authority have been the same, repressing their own people, in, sometimes to, 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 to levels that are incomprehensible. Palestinians were and are dying under torture in Palestinian prisons. And why is that? Because in the Oslo formula, the PA was meant to secure security for Israel. That was, that was the role of the Palestinian Authority. And effectively, uh, the Palestinian Authority is acting upon this mandate with, in a very sophisticated and efficient way to the point that uh, political movements and uh, protest and dissent in general in Palestine is, uh, is strongly repressed, is contained. Uh, people, people cannot confront today the Israeli army as they did before without first confronting their own police. And therefore, uh, with all of that, I want to come to the point that uh, the fight, it seems suddenly 
very sadly, it seems that today the fight of the, the Palestinian people is not only against Israeli colonialism, but it's also, also against their own authority that became an instrument of the colonization project. And therefore, Terry, what we need is the international community also to put pressure on, on Israel to allow Palestinian elections that were announced some months ago and suspended mm. now because nobody, not Europe, not North America, not Israel, not the PA wants want elections. Yeah. But without elections, there is no possibility of Palestinian political unity. And therefore, uh, a, a solution to the conflict is more, more and more distant. Um, you're listening to the Radical Reverend Show here on podcast or on the radio, speaking to Emilio Dab, uh, Dabed and also David Slavic, two uh, lawyers. Uh, we're, of course, of course, talking about the issue dominating the press uh, other than COVID these days, and that's what's happening in the Middle East. Um, uh, Emilio, just before I let you go on that, on that question of Palestinian leadership, um, the focus really is on Gaza now uh, and the leadership there. Um, talk about that a bit before I'm going to get... Uh, we're going to switch. We've only got about 15 minutes left, and I want to talk about um, some other things closer to home. But um, yeah, what about the the leadership in in Gaza? Well, uh, the issue of the leadership, the Palestinian leadership in Gaza, is is a is a much more complicated uh, point. <clears throat> uh, why? Because because the the, the the people in Gaza, two million people in been under siege for 15 years and, and they are target for physical annihilation. Uh, so, so what should the, the, the Hamas leadership do? Well, they tried, and this is why it's so important uh, to not to leave Palestinians without alternatives. Uh, because Hamas tried in 2006. They after after rejecting Oslo for more than 10 years. Uh, uh, finally, Hamas came to terms with the idea that Oslo somehow was the alternative and participation in electoral processes were necessary and they did so. They started by participating in municipal local elections, which they won, and then they won uh, legislative elections. And therefore, according to the legal uh, constitutional reforms in Palestine in 2003, which uh, uh, turned the political regime into a parliamentarian regime when Hamas won the elections, the legislative elections in 2006, it became uh, entitled to form a government, they did. Uh, and nevertheless, uh, Israel and the international community colluded with the Fatah uh, leadership, tried to destabilize the Hamas government. They boycott, they boycotted it. And, in, and they applied, um, this is fascinating. They applied in 2006, 2007, a formula that the US and imperial powers had applied all, all over during the Cold War. The, uh, Sherry, what, what happened in, 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 in the West Bank and Gaza in 2006-2007, I'm referring to the boycott of the Hamas government, was very similar in economic, 
political diplomatic terms to what happened to Salvador Allende in Chile between 1970 and 1973, which was basically, I, I'm sure you, you know this uh, story, right? Kissinger um, and, the, and the then uh, Nixon, President Nixon uh, declaring that they would make the, the, the Chilean economy scream, right? That they right and uh, and they basically brought the country to a, such a state of uh, institutional crisis and collapse that it could justify the Pinochet's coup d'état. Well, the same formula. Uh, all formulas apply today to new enemies. You you change the word communist by Muslim, and and the formula works the same way. Boy economic boycott, diplomatic boycott, political boycott, and if necessary, military intervention, which was exactly what was being planned in the West Bank and Gaza in 2007. And Hamas only preempted this coup d'etat. Look, I'm not a, I'm not a fan of uh, Hamas. I, 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 I'm not even religious. I would not vote for them. What I'm defending here is a principle. They won the elections. And, and, and that was so good because, because to be exposed to political arena for, for political movements that are somehow radicalized actually brings them closer to, to, to the center, brings them to, to the need of being pragmatic and, and ruling. But Hamas actually was not giving this opportunity. And then, and then they had to, and to retrench in Gaza and, and, and then the, the siege came. So honestly, I don't know how to judge Hamas. Um, I, I think, uh, I think uh, uh, Hamas, represents a, a, a resistance movement that are under international law uh, is a right that every people under foreign domination need uh, have the right to exercise. At the same time, I, I, I know I recognize that Hamas has made mistakes that I, 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 I do not support Hamas strategy today, but, uh, but I will not completely delegitimize their existence. Right. Thank you very much, Amelia. That was a terrific uh, <laughs> explanation. Um, thank you. I mean, to me, uh, and I just want to sort of summarize this conversation for a minute. We've just got a few, not too long left. Um, uh, but, uh, but I mean, it's something that you do not hear on mainstream media. I mean, first of all, the level of analysis, first of all, the opinion. Um, and I guess we'll, you know, we'll just take the remaining moments. I was going to, you know, come back to Canada, but this is this is far far too fascinating. The the other question and I'm going to go to you, to David, yeah, on this is is media and media's response. I mean, because it's one thing to have governments do what they do, one thing to have international communities, one thing to have something happening on the ground and people on the ground recognizing what's happening, but it's the reporting um, that seems to be completely lacking here. It's like a public relations announcement. Um, so, so why and what do we do to change that? David. 
I, th I think that the, there's a, a lot of fear, and I think that this started, um, you know, this year with um, some of the the work that has been done to put the squeeze on academics like uh, Valentina Azarova at University of Toronto, uh, where she was uh, pushed out of a job or, you know, uh, allegedly pushed out of a job because of her past work on Palestinian rights. You see these things that um, we... Faisal Baba, who was a who was a colleague of uh, Emilio's and a colleague of my my wife at at uh, Osgood, uh, was under storm for very innocuous comments about Palestinian rights. Um, we we see that that there is repercussions for actually recognizing the truth and reality of of these of these situations in Canadian media and Canadian uh, academia. And so when you see people go so softly on what is essentially a, a, a terrible situation, you know it's because that people are afraid of backlash. And um, Andre Demise, uh, uh, an, another uh, person who has been affiliated with the Nathan's Center, where, where Emilio is, uh, Emilio has a new position. I, I forget what the, his new title is there, but um, he had he is uh, one of the people spearheading an open letter to Canadian newsrooms and covering Israel Palestine, and you know where where they're asking people to go beyond this both sides of them. You know, this is this is not the t this has shifted from, you know, sort of, a, you know, it's this is not Democrats or Republicans. This is not the liberals versus conservatives. This is a really life or death situation for Palestinians. And and the, the these journalists are, are asking the newsrooms to cover it differently. Um, there's a great if you go to at. Uh, uh, to the pin tweet, I think uh, Andre Demise on Twitter, you can find that that that. Um, that open letter and sign it. I, I signed it myself. I encourage other people to sign it. Um, I think it's really important. And I think that as we, we've seen this sort of the attack on free speech around Israel, Palestine, I think you're going to see um, the need to pressure a newsrooms to do the right thing increase. Uh, I, the pressure seems to me to have been there. I, I don't want to be the cynic on that uh, front, but um but I mean, again, Emilio, um, why, why this lack? Uh, it's it's not even a lack. I mean, it's it's a conscious it's a conscious choice that mainstream media is making here, um, uh, that they're just not going to report. Right? They're just not going to do journalism one hundred and one on this particular issue. So, um, thoughts? Uh, I would say that. This is actually very scary from a political point of view because um, because what it shows, Cherry, is the gap, the huge, immense gap that uh, uh, that exists in Western countries. But I would say in most countries, I, I don't, I, I, I cannot think of any exception between established political establishment and media and people. It's like, a, I don't know if you have the impression, this impression, but uh, I, I, I think political establishment and media are absolutely counterpopular today. They are selling to people news that people know they are lies, actually. And, and, and actually, I want to, I, I was thinking about that, making a, an explicit uh, recognition to you and your program for having us and giving us the time to talk about these things. This is so rare. 
uh, that uh, not only to give us the time, but uh, I see that you prepare this and that you have been treating it with such a sensitivity that I, I really appreciate. Now, uh, I would say that the media is carrying out its own warfare against people in this uh, in this respect right one one could be one could perfectly say that we are being bombed with words actually permanently and these words are the ones that you were mentioning both sides uh, violent clashes defend itself rather than i don't know colonial violence or or apartheid or or etc so uh, Israel in the media never bombs, they always target. Uh, Palestinians are never assassinated, assassinated, they are killed. Like it could be, be a natural disaster. No, nobody knows, right? They were killed. Nobody knows by whom, under which circumstances, etc. So, and and the and the other and the other point is that how much uh media gives a, a disproportionate space to Israeli voices. Um, uh, yeah, I think uh, this, is, this is what is, I don't know exactly why it's happening, uh, but I know what is happening. And what is happening is that media is lying to us. And it's, and, and, and is lying to us, not only in regard to Palestine, Israel, it, they are lying to us about uh, neoliberalism, uh, public policies, uh, etc. So, so what we need to do is to exercise our right of self-defense in terms of information and reward programs like yours, and, and I would say boycott, or any other kind of other civil initiative to put pressure on, on media to report honestly. Uh, that, that sounds like a very good note, note to end on. Thank you so much, uh, Emilio uh, Dabed, uh, professor at York, uh, Osgood now, long history of, of, of academic work elsewhere, and David Slavic, regular contributor. Uh, Emilio, will have to have you back on. Um, uh, just one final word. I, you know, I'm old enough to remember um, when, when media actually showed pictures of conflicts you know, you could actually have a camera there showing what was happening. Um, they learned, and I think the Vietnam War taught them that. Um, they taught they taught them don't do that because people will get upset. They don't like seeing people get killed and hurt. So don't don't show that. Just don't show it, um, and then we don't have a problem. They've they've conducted every other war since, uh, completely incognito, more or less, in the most mainstream media. Anyway, on that on that note, uh, please keep your comments and. Uh, Concerns coming, always love to hear from you out there in Lister land. Until the next time on the Radical Reverend Show. Oh.